You are listening to Let's Talk Trio on podcasts. Keep up with the latest episodes by downloading the Podbean app or stream episodes via our social media accounts. Search for Let's Talk Trio on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. This episode is sponsored by Student Access. Student Access, the leader in Trio software. Student Access is an online database solution that allows TRIO programs to track their students' information, connect with students by text messages, streamline the APR, and work from anywhere, all online, with automatic updates for changes from the Department of Education. Their technical support team includes former TRIO staff and has over 50 years of combined experience working with TRIO. Make it easier to focus on your priority, the students. For more information and to request a free demo, visit their website at www.studentaccess.com or call them toll-free at 1-800-801-1232. That website again is www.studentaccess.com or 1-800-801-1232. Be sure to share your favorite episodes on your social media by tapping that share button. This is a great way to support the podcast. Now here's your host, Juan Rivas. Thank you, Amelia, for that wonderful introduction. Hello, listeners, and welcome to another episode of Let's Talk Trio. I am your host, Juan Rivas. In this episode, we have Ainika Williams, who is the Assistant Director at the Center for Academic Retention and Enhancement at Florida State University and serves as the Trio Upward Bound Director. Ainika is on the podcast to talk about her childhood, what it was like growing up, what led to her journey in TRIO, and her overall college education. This podcast episode was very fun to make. Uh, We talked about Ainika's experience as a TRIO director, the childhood, her her background, and all their experiences that accumulated to her being inspired to follow this path in TRIO. So this episode was really special to make, and uh, I really appreciated uh, her being on the podcast. So Ainika, thank you so much for being here and for being on the podcast and sharing your story. Remember, you too can be on the podcast. Send us a direct message via Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. Look for Let's Talk Trio. You could also send us an email at Let's Talk Trio, L-E-T-S-T-A-L-K, T-R-I-O at gmail.com. A special thanks to our sponsor, Angelica Villalpando. Thank you so much for sponsoring the podcast. You too can be a sponsor. Go to Patreon, look for Let's Talk Trio, and donate any dollar amount. The amount of money that you donate is a monthly recurring charge. However, you can stop your patronage after one month. Again, this episode with Ainika Williams, very fun to create. I enjoyed talking to her and talking, getting to know more about her and her inspiration behind uh, working with Trio and what she wants to do, her, her goal in life. I know that this story will resonate with our audience. So please sit back, relax, and enjoy this episode. Five, four, three... Two, one. Hi, Trio Nation. My next guest on the podcast is Ainika Williams, is the Assistant Director of the Center for Academic Retention and Enhancement at Florida State University and serves as the Upward Bound Director. 
Einika professional mission is to increase the number of bachelor de- uh, bachelor degree holders for students who are in the first year to attend college and for other underrepresented populations. Einika's professional experience serves to reinforce her commitment to advocating for programs and policies that provide access for all students to enter college through holistic support. Prior to her current appointment, she advocated for K-12 student success at K-12 school counselor and classroom teacher. And as a counselor for youth programs in Germany, Japan, and Hawaii, she received her master's degree in counseling from Florida State University and a bachelor's of science from Florida A&M University. I want to welcome Einika Williams to the Let's Talk Trio podcast. Einika, welcome. Hi, good afternoon. Hi, Juan. Thank you for the invitation. Um, I'm excited to talk about my experience with Upper Bound Programs and just a little bit about my personal experiences. Absolutely. We're so happy to have you on here and so glad that we were able to connect. I know that uh, uh, we put the call out for uh, people to be on the podcast and I'm so glad you responded. Um, so how are you doing? How are things in Florida? Making I'm, do, I'm making the best out of what we have um, at the situation at hand. So every day something changes and so we are being as flexible as, as we can during this time. Absolutely. Uh, how are things going in the midst of the COVID-19 pandemic? How has that affected your work? So currently, um, as you know, the as many people know, because it's all over national news, there's been a surge in COVID cases in Florida. I think when we first started out, we weren't, it wasn't too bad, but it has, it has totally gone on the other side of the spectrum. And so um, our local school districts are battling this very controversial decision to reopen the schools and whether they should go virtual or face-to-face. And so as a director, um, I manage uh, the Upper Bound Program in one in three different counties. And so we serve Gadsden County, Leon County, and Duval County. And so I'm kind of sitting at bay to see what the school districts are going to do, if they're going to allow us to go into the schools, if the university will allow us to have contact with students. So again, we're just kind of sitting at bay and, and waiting to see what will surface within the next couple of weeks. Yeah, I think that a lot of schools are struggling to respond to the COVID-19. I know for us here in Colorado, uh, the option to have students return to campus, it's still kind of shaky. We, we, we're trying to figure out what is the best response and how do we go about it. But uh, sounds like you're already thinking about your upper bound program and how to best approach this, uh, this pandemic. Yes, most certainly. We've had to cancel our spring. We had a spring break tour to Atlanta and mm-hmm. um, managed two, two college access um, programs. And one of our, our middle school programs, uh, the students had never been to Atlanta, even though it's like four hours away. And so we had planned this really amazing week-long trip and we were going to tour some HBCUs and, and some other universities in the area and that got canceled. And so we had to switch gears rather quickly because obviously we still have to provide services to our students. Absolutely. Um, one of the challenges we actually ran into is because we, I serve a, a rural population, um, about 80% of our population live in a very rural county. And so having to try to engage students and do so when they have very limited access to Wi-Fi or internet. So like we have hotspots, but they may not have towers in the areas that they are, they're living in. So we definitely ran into some unique challenges, um, but thankfully I have a really strong team and uh, you know, we have strong parents who, are, who support our programs and we, we're making it work, so. That is amazing. And it just sounds like being the director, you're, you're 
being tossed into with a lot of things, not only dealing with the pandemic, but the planning and uh, working with parents, working with students, uh, with everything going on in the world, what do you find or what do you turn to, to what is your creative outlet or your outlet to de-stress? So I, I have two boys, I have a, and they're toddlers. I have a one-year-old and a three-year-old. So they have been, um, their school have also, has also been closed. And so oh I tried to find, a, I'm home balancing, of course, running the summer program. I'm also in a, doc, a doctoral program at Florida State. Um, so I have courses that I'm taking. And then, of course, having to entertain my, my children and make sure that they have some type of routine and stability um, since they've been uprooted from their there. So we have taken up actually bike cycling um, through oh, town. That has been so much fun because I have a, um, my son has, he knows how to ride his bike. And then we have a, like a, kind of like a portable thing that I attach to my bicycle. And so my husband and I, we take the boys out on bike trails and there's some, there are some trails that run like 25 miles long. And so we've been, we've been able to do up to five this summer. And so taking the boys out um, so we can, we don't, because we are, we had, we were in shelter, we're under shelter orders for a while. So mm-hmm. now that that's been lifted, we have been able to go out and still do things without coming into contact with people. So that has been so much fun. Right on. I think in the midst of the COVID-19 pandemic, people have figured out how to be a little bit more creative or to be, uh, to go out and explore or do, do things that they weren't able to do before or to take up hobbies that they've been wanting to do, right? Um, so I've, I've received a lot of a good variety of answers when I asked that question and cycling has yet to come up. So good for you. Thank you for sharing that. Yes. Yes. So was for, for you, can you tell us about your origin story and your childhood growing up, Ainika? Uh, what was that like for you growing up? Yes, I would love to share that. Absolutely. So I am a first generation American and I guess you can classify me too as like a second generation Im- immigrant. Um, my parents are from Trinidad and I grew up in a, a very small, insulated Caribbean community in Brooklyn. And so um, my, I have a very large family. I, I'm like your typical trio student. I didn't, I, didn't ex- I didn't have a trio program that I enrolled in, but I fit a lot of those like first gen categories. Um, so my mom kept us very sheltered in. My mom migrated to the US when she was like in her 30s. So my mother loves American culture, but she was just deathly afraid that we would kind of get warped up in the system. So as I was when, growing up, most of my friends were either immigrants or first gens like myself. And we, it, we tend to see a lot of, um, a lot of my peers came to the US and they, you know, got caught up in the not so good things that, you know, tends to happen. Um, and they get sent back. And so my mom was very fearful of that for me. So she kept us, we were very much sheltered. And so um, one thing that I really enjoyed in my childhood is I was really big into reading and literature and literature allowed me to really understand that there's a world that exists beyond the community that I was from. And so um, I didn't I didn't know where I was going. I didn't know if college was gonna be the end goal. I just knew that I wanted more for myself. And so through my passion for reading, um, that kind of cultivated my path and, and it, it, it's opened up my eyes to want to do more and, and experience more in life. So, yeah. Um, but yeah, I come from a big family and uh, again, I'm a proud Caribbean American and though the culture has really um, shaped who I am today. And was there a specific book that really, that really resonated with you? That's a good question. I, I read everything and I, it wasn't, mm-hmm. I didn't, I 
didn't read anything that was, and to this day, when I do read, it's more recreational read. So it wasn't like this life-changing, you know, literature that I picked up, but I, I, I read any and everything. So we used to get those scholastic newsletters when we were oh. in elementary school. You remember that? Yeah, I do. And, <laughs> yeah, and I would get, I would get a $20 allowance like every other week. And I would literally spend the entire $20 on purchasing like Babysitter's Club, Goosebumps. Wow. Yeah fictional children novels so um but still through even through those very simple simplistic um narratives and stories it was just like oh i want to travel i want to see the world and again growing up as a my parents were working class we didn't travel very often but again i knew that this world existed and i wanted to experience it and how was i going to get there so that was always um something that was within me and it, it eventually fostered and grew and I, I I'm blessed to at this point have been able to do a lot of what I've dreamed of doing and achieving that is amazing and uh can you tell us about I know that your you said your family uh really encouraged educational pursuit was was college something your parents encouraged uh you to pursue or was it something more much more internal so interested, interestingly, no. So my my mother's big, my both of my parents, their highest level of education is high, is high school. And so my mother's big thing is that she wanted me to graduate from high school. I literally was like, you can't have a boyfriend until you, you know, you, you cross the stage and you graduate, then you can do whatever you want. My dad on the other end, um, he was, he was in the Navy for a while and his big dream for me was to join the Air Force. And so he's really um, of the belief that you know, you shouldn't acquire debt and, you know, education should be free. And so even when my parents dropped me off to college, my dad was kind of frowning like, this isn't a good idea. But um, mm -hmm. going to college was one of the best decisions that I, that I made. So I have three younger siblings and I don't think college was ever on their radar. And so I would come home during like the college breaks, spring breaks, winter breaks, and I would just talk about, you know, college culture, the, you know, homecoming. I went to Florida A&M University, Tallahassee, mm -hmm. um, and so I would come and talk about the band and homecoming and being in the dorms and just how rich college life was for me. And it inspired them to follow suit. And so, yeah, to answer your question, a lot of it was internal and it, it ended up really changing the trajectory of my, my family's educational legacy. Wow. And, and who served as your mentor? Who, how did they help guide you through this, through high school or, or through college? That's a, that's a good question. I never really had a formal mentor. So as I shared, um, I had work, my parents were working class. And so the only professionals that I really was exposed to um, were teachers. And um, I had, yeah, teachers and like my doctor, right? So my doctor obviously went to med school and then mm -hmm. my teacher went to college and that was it. So I really, um, I, we did have a college success program and I, we eventually moved from Florida, to, um, New York to Florida. And then the high, the, the high school that I attended there, they had a college access program. And so we had someone in that office who kind of, she came in, she, I, you know, see, see her and saw her in passing and I created a relationship with her and she kind of got me on track to um, start applying for, for colleges. So didn't really, again, didn't really have a formal mentor. My supports were more so informal, um, but that was enough to, again, get me to, to apply and enroll and, and, and graduate. That's amazing. So uh, really, again, like you, you were saying, it was all internal. You were the one pushing yourself to become this, this college student to transition into college uh, while in high school, it sounds like. 
Yes, very much so. It was definitely a, an internal light that I that I had, and I followed it and listened to my instinct and went against what my parents wanted, and and it, it again it ended up changing so much for me and inspiring my my siblings to do the same. Yeah, it's again, it sounds like you were the spark and kind of the trailblazer for all of that. Uh, ultimately, you decided that college was the route for you. Why did you pick? the college that you attended and what made it a good fit for you? That's a great question. So I, in my, my senior, my senior year in high school, I had, I went to predominantly uh, black high school in Fort Lauderdale and my teachers were, they were, most of them were African-American who attended HBCUs, either mainly in Florida. So like Bethune-Cookman University is, the, is one of the two big um, HBCUs in Florida. And then there's Florida Agricultural and Mechanical University, which is where I ended up attending. And so rather than teach, my teachers literally would like spend the first 20, 30 minutes talking about their experience um, at an HBCU. They talked about, again, the band and homecoming and Greek life. And I just literally became like borderline obsessed with like going to an HBCU. So my decision of, I, although I applied to almost every single school, because as you, as you, I'm not sure how familiar you are with like the first gen experience and the obstacles that we tend to face, but I didn't really, I didn't distinguish colleges from another. Like I didn't really understand like, an HBCU versus like a PWI versus a community college. I just kind of applied to everywhere that would accept an application. Mm -hmm. um, but it boiled, eventually boiled down to either going to Howard or um, FAMU, which is where, again where I attended. So mm -hmm. um, it, it was such a culturally enriching experience. Um, and again, sharing that with, again, my siblings, they all ended up following me and, and, and enrolling at FAMU. Um, so that that cultural fit that you get in an HBCU really was a safe space for me um, growing up as a as a young adult and figuring out what I wanted to do in life and where I was going. And so um, I hope for the same for my sons. I, I hope they follow suit and do attend an HBCU because again the the cultural fit was just it was it was my safe space and it was a, a wonderful journey. Yeah. And I absolutely relate to you when you say that first generation experience. I, I think for me, it was uh, applying to only one school because I, I had this imposter syndrome thinking no other school will want me. I think my local college is going to take me, maybe, may or may not take me. So I, I applied only to one college. I didn't do my thorough research and just ended up applying to my local uh, uh, small D2 uh, university. But uh, it was it's that fear of do I, am I good enough for college? And I think uh, for a lot of us first gen, it, it, we go through a, a gamut of, of, of emotions. Yes, agree. And, and, and I see that too with, with my students is they, they can't picture themselves at, you know, an Ivy League institution. They don't even apply. Mm -hmm. so it's, again, imposter syndrome is very real. And um, getting to change that mindset for first-gen students is critically important in, in order for them to, you know, the sky's the limit to reach that limit. Agreed. And so how do you help your students? I know we're, we're veering off a little bit from the script, but I wanted to ask you, how do you help your students understand that imposters, imposter syndrome is real and how do you help them overcome that? So one of um, one of my um, staff members, she is, she's, I'm, well, I'm a counselor by training and she mm -hmm. is as so we do, while we do have our academic sessions and we do our cultural enrichment, we have those conversations with our students and we, we, we tap into that. 
um, I'm working with one student now and he brilliant, brilliant, brilliant child. And, but he doesn't, he don't think he's deserving of a seat into, into Florida state. And so again, tapping into that, asking those questions and having those conversations and not kind of bypassing it. Mm-hmm. Um, I know I believe in him and I believe in all of the, the, the students that I work with, um, but it's getting them to, they have to own that and have to come to that realization. Mm-hmm. So we have yeah. those and we we make opportunities to you know debrief after we maybe talk maybe we do a college campus a virtual campus college tour and mm-hmm. um, again facilitating those opportunities to have those those conversations with students is is, is key for us yeah so Einika can you tell can you describe your college journey and what did you enjoy most about that experience college was such a roller coaster because I had no idea what I was getting myself into I I, I College was what, what I knew going into college was based off the experiences of my high school teachers um, and YouTube videos and Facebook didn't exist at the time. There was something called HBCU Connect. So I mm-hmm. spent the whole summer before I started college on that website, net, um, networking with people that were, you know, enrolling at fam- in FAMU with me as well. Um, but it was a complete roller coaster because again, I kind of went in with my eyes closed. I had Unlike our trio students, I did not have, you know, financial literacy lessons before I started. I had, I had no idea what a correct career center was until I got to graduate school. Um, so I changed majors like four times. I went from like being a PR major to business to entertaining social work. And then I eventually landed in education. Mm-hmm. Uh, I made a, a, a ton of financial mismanagement of decisions like taking out a credit card um, because they were giving free pizza. Oh, um, right. <laughs> so it was a complete roller coaster for me. Mm-hmm. And so, but having staying grounded and kind of looking at what the, the end, the end goal was, was, was one of my missions. Cause I, I didn't go to college to, to drop out. I had to finish. So it did take me longer than four years. Um, I finished within six, but again, my journey was uh, the ultimate roller coaster. Um, what I enjoyed most about college, and this is something when I talk to young students who are entertaining the idea of going to college, I, I try to sh- stay away from the talking so heavily about the academic side um, because college is such a socially enriching experience. You're meeting people from all over the, the world, really. Um, you're having opportunities to, you know, go to other, travel to other universities and meet people and network and join clubs and organizations. And the social aspect is, I feel that, especially our first gen students, that's all they think about um, if they are capable of sustaining the rigor of college. And so um, the social aspect of, again, attending an HBCU and attending college was probably, um, it attributes to college being such a success and a wonderful experience for me. That's wonderful. And you decided to go into counseling and counseling education. Is that correct? Yes. So I got my bachelor's in elementary education. Mm-hmm. Um, and then eventually I, I, I got my master's from Florida State. Um, but what inspired you to pursue that field? Why, why that field of study? So I talked earlier about how I read so much and that I had these big travel goals. I wanted to travel and see the world. And so I was um, fortunate to stumble across a program called Camp Adventure. Um, it's the University of Northern Iowa had this program. And um, what it was, was pretty much you, you, you work overseas on military installations on um, in, in their youth services program. So you're pretty much a camp counselor on a military base. And so 
a, a few years back, they branched out to come to FAMU to kind of diversify their, their um, employment staff. And so I had the opportunity to work in Japan for an entire summer. I was in Zama, Japan, um, like an hour away from Tokyo. I did That's that. That's amazing. Wow. It, incredible. Yeah. And I was in for I think about 10 weeks and then I was in I was in Germany for a month and that experience was life changing mm -hmm. and so there's this quote that says like find a job you love and you'll never work another day in your life and when I worked with the youth and when I worked with children that's how I felt it never felt like I was at work and so that's how I eventually stumbled into education and my career sort of evolved where I've um, then take, taking on the counseling piece to work one-on-one -on -one with students. And that eventually led me to my current role as the um, upper bound director at FSU. Wow. So you really took that mantra to heart is uh, really find something that you really, really love and really you're not working. You're just enjoying what you do and getting paid for it. Exactly. Yes. Yes. Very much. When you asked me, and someone asked me this, I can't remember who and when, but they asked me, what do you do for fun? And I was like, work. And they said, no, really, what, <laughs> what do you do that makes you laugh? And I, you know, then I had to kind of think outside the box there, but I, I truly, truly enjoy the work that I do. It's, it's, it, it, it motivates me to, to get up every day and, and really make a difference in the lives of my students. That's wonderful. Being a first-generation student in college, what were some challenges or obstacles that you faced, and how did you overcome them? So, and I, I, I think I tapped into this um, a little bit earlier, but I can elaborate a bit. So, yeah, um, I'm in a, I'm in a doc program, and so my dissertation is dedicated to learning about um, educational outcomes for first-gen students. So, I read all this literature on first-gen, and literally every obstacle and challenge that first-gen experiences, like, I fit that box like a hundred percent. So mm. um, in terms of challenges, are you asking about my personal challenges or, or challenges that first gen students experience in general? Either first generation uh, college student challenges or personal challenge or anything that you really, that uh, was something that was a new challenge to you and you found a way to overcome it. So um, cultural capital. So that's the, that's when I'm, that's the, that's the big thing that I'm studying. And I, I think I definitely went into college <clears throat> without having much cultural capital on the transition to college life. Um, you know, learn, having kind of the, like understanding the hidden curriculum, as they say. Mm -hmm. um, so if you get a, a low grade in the class that, you know, you just don't take it, you go talk to your professor, you spend time during their office hours, knowing what office hours are. And so a lot of those little things that, um, you know, I think most people take for granted, first gen students, we, we don't know that going in. Um, so I experienced a lot of those little things, like instead of changing majors to, to determine if it's a good fit, you know, I could have gone to the career center and do a career assessment, but again, not having the cultural capital of all the resources that's available to you when you're on this big college campus, um, it kind of, it kind of it, it slows your, your, it slowed my path into, I guess, graduating in four years. And so um, I think that lack of cultural capital, and it comes, it, it, it ties into with the whole, I'm a first generation American theme mm -hmm. as well. Um, because if I, if you don't have parents who've navigated through these waters, you're, you're even more lost than someone whose parents are from this country and have been through the educational system. So yeah. my, my parents, my mom, really my mom, she's a really big educational advocate. She really fought for me to attend the best schools in New York City when, when, when we were there. But by the time I got to high school, that support from her kind of fell off because 
it was just kind of above what she could, what she knew. Mm -hmm. And so um, it's almost like a double layered issue for me is the, you know, the, the cultural capital from the immigration immigrant type um, standpoint and just being a first gen in, in general. Yeah. And so you, you say it took roughly six years to graduate, but tell us about your graduation in that moment. What did that feel like for you? It was, uh, it was, I can't, I can't even find the words. It was, it was profound. It was inspiring. It was, um, incredible. It was, I mean, all these different emotions I think about when I, I crossed the stage, my, my siblings who had not yet, uh, you know, enrolled in and started college, they were all there to see, to witness me walk across the stage. And so, um, you know, I, I say kind of like I do, I did it for them because I wanted them to see that despite, you know, the challenges that we had or, you know, at the time and just growing up that a, attaining a college degree was, was still possible. And it, it was, it, it, you know, it's, it's, it's something that they could attain. And so, mm-hmm. um, one of my sisters, uh, her name is Shanata Monesty, and she's now an ecology professor at the University of Northern Texas. So she went on to become a pharmacist. And my oh. brother is pursuing dental school. Um, he's getting ready to take the, I think it's called the DAT. And then my youngest, my baby sister, she is enrolled in the MPH program at the University of Central Florida. So they eventually oh. did follow suit and they really took my graduation success and degree attainment to heart. And, um, you know, we're all in route to be doctors. So um, that is amazing. A family of doctors. Congratulations to you and your family. Yes, yes. Thank you so much. And uh, it was just really amazing just hearing from you how much of a trailblazer you are and uh, the path that you set for your siblings, that must have been, for a first-generation student, extremely important that you've set that up for, for your family to follow. It, 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 and what I, I don't speak on it often because I, I, I don't like to my own horn, but they always remind me, like, they say, thank you, Anika. You know, if it wasn't for you, my sister, who's a pharmacist, she said I, her big dream was to be a pharmacy tech. So she got this job at, I think it was CVS or Walmart um, as a pharmacy technician. And that was her end goal. She wanted to become a certified pharmacy technician. But, mm-hmm. um, you know, having, I, I guess, the, the pharmacist at her, at her place of employment and then seeing me go to, to college, she said, well, I can just become a pharmacist. So the pharmacy technician plans were at and she pursued pharmacy school and she really did it. So um, that is amazing. That is yeah. awesome. Um, did you know what your career path would look like after you graduated? I did not. Um, every single position that I take, I say, oh, this is it. I love this job so much. I'm going to retire from it. So um, I started my career as a first grade teacher and I really, really enjoyed it. And I wanted to, to be there. But again, there was this calling for me. College access was always kind of something at the back of my mind that I, that I wanted to engage in. And so I said, well, I'm going to become a school counselor. And and so I went on to get my counseling degree, and then I was a school counselor working at a, one of the one of the top high schools in the in the nation. And I I saw that there were systematic issues with getting our students into college, and it wasn't just low income or first gen students. Again, I was working at uh, one of the top high schools in the nation, and the college access efforts. I it it. It wasn't to what I would hope it would be. You know, as a first gen 
my lens are how are we getting kids to college? That's always kind of the first thing that I'm thinking. And um, I remember sitting, sitting in a leadership meeting and um, someone that I respect very much, she was kind of like the informal supervisor. She said, our goal is not really college. Our goal is to get them to graduate from high school. That's the priority. Yeah. And while I, I, I believe that, that we have to get them to graduate from high school, that is important. Um, we're nationwide, I just don't think we're doing enough in our school systems to push college. Um, I, I recently read this, um, this research study and this, the researcher works in a rural, rural county and she assessed like the entire student body. It's a small school and assessed how many of them wanted to go to college. And I think the numbers was something like 87 or 92%. It was really, really high. Mm-hmm. And then she compared those numbers to the senior class who were entering college. I think it was like 20%. Oh. So the, the desire and the need to pursue a college degree is there. Um, I just don't think our students, regardless of honestly their SES status, I don't think they're getting those in-school supports that they should. Yeah. And so um, that I, I, I took that same passion and I applied for you know my upper bound director position um, because I, I was a when I was working as the high school counselor in that capacity, um, I wanted to create more systematic change to it to address the gaps that I was seeing. So my, a lot of minority students are not enrolling in the dual enrollment program. And I was a dual enrollment coordinator. And again, mm-hmm. I wanted that leadership role to take on these systematic changes. And at the time, that wasn't really the focus. So yeah. I was weeks pregnant, sitting in a, par- a parking lot, four rivers, uh-huh. and got the email where you know the, the 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 changes that I wanted to implement wasn't being wasn't being honored at the time or there just wasn't room for it and I was just very frustrated so mm-hmm. I sat 38 weeks pregnant in in my car and I I searched like college access coordinator or or whatever I put into to indeed.com and the upper bound program came up I went home I applied for it and um two when my son was like I think three or four weeks I got a call for an interview and here I am wow amazing that blows my mind completely uh Ainika, we're going to take a quick uh sponsor break uh and listeners we'll be back with more with Ainika Williams from Florida State University. We'll be back shortly. Four, three, two, one. And we are back with Ainika Williams. Uh, so you were talking about your career path, what led you to TRIO, and you answered really my, my next question is what, what led you to the Upper Bound program? Uh, so I'm going to go ahead and skip forward to the next question is, I think that TRIO exists in this very unique corner of education, and it is part self-discovery, renewed education, advocacy, and college support. Is that a fair assessment of TRIO? And what would you add to that list? Yes, absolutely. So I, I, I consider TRIO to be a systematic game changer. It, it is everything that I wanted in my career. And so we, um, 
you know, we're blessed with funds from the federal government and we're able to provide cultural enrichment and academic support services that our students who attend underserved schools generally don't receive. And so, again, I would probably add like a systematic game changer and it, it helps cultivate an educational legacy for students who, in my opinion, are just cast off by society due to their socioeconomic circumstances. Um, so it is an honor to, to work in TRIO and to do the work that we do. And so, yes, to answer your question, it is, it is a very fair assessment of, of what we do in, in TRIO. And to kind of dovetail off of that question, I, I wanted to ask you about the relevance of TRIO. And I know that I'm kind of preaching to the choir or talking about um, positively, positively about TRIO with, with others, because that's been my experience is uh, TRIO is definitely a game changer and it's there to address a lot of systematic um, uh, uh, whether, whether we're talking about students who fall through the cracks. And I hear that term a lot is high school students who fall through the cracks. And I feel like upper bound is that safety net for those students, for those students that typically get ignored. Um, and I know for me, that, that was my experience. Uh, for you being a first generation student, did you experience that while in high school? So yes, yes and no. Um, okay, so well, let me answer the question so I can yeah, provide. Yeah. So we had, as I shared, we had, a, we had a college access coordinator at my high school. And I just happened, I guess I'm a, a somewhat of a borderline nerd. So all of my friends were in the IB program. I moved to Florida and in my, my junior year and it was too late for me to join. So, but they ended up, they, most of my friends were enrolled in that program. And so I learned of the college access coordinator through my friends in the IB program. And unfortunately, I never saw her in regular classes. So I, I in learning, and understanding that, hey, my friends are going to college, I want to do the same. How do I prepare myself to, you know, for college enrollment? Um, I, I started to enroll in those AP and honors classes to get my GPA up. Um, but I did take what we would deem as like regular traditional classes, and I never saw her in those classes. And mm. so um, that, and, and I actually wrote about this both in my personal statement for my master's program and my doc program. Um, that bothered me even mm. though I was receiving the benefits because I was in the in the honors in the you know the color the college rigorous classes it bothered me I guess to this present day that she did not take the time to visit the classes where our students were the students were dropping out or they had the 2.0 GPAs and mm -hmm. I think if anything that's where she should have been and so um I, I personally wasn't overlooked, but I easily could have been if I didn't have, you know, if I didn't have the right friends, so to speak, um, to influence me to, you know, up the rigor in my college, in my high school classes. Yeah. Anika, why is it important for high school students to engage in early college discussions? Uh, so, and, and let me think on that. So yeah. you said, why is it important? Yeah. And so kind of the kind of the same thing so and I, I mentioned this earlier you know students most students want to go I think if you if you poll students and you know underserved in title one schools and you talk about college they want to go mm -hmm. and I've read research again this is my area of study for my dissertation um, I've read studies that show that elementary schools poor and rich they all want to pursue you know getting going to college and, and having that experience 
Um, but because again, the school systems are not, that's not their focus. They lose those dreams and those hopes mm -hmm. when they get high school. And so we have to have those conversations early and we have to make, we have to take the, the glam out of, no, kind of the elitism of being in college away from students. So I always bring my students on campus as much as I can. So we have like academies, which all upper bound programs do, but um, we have to have those conversations with them early. We have to start pre preparing them for college enrollment. That has to be the end goal. Um, we have a moral obligation to do that, especially for our underserved populations. Um, and like I said, the college, ex the college access person from my high school, she had a moral obligation to be in those classes. Um, too many of our students are, are overlooked because they're poor or they may, they may sag their pants or they may do things that's not uh, approved um, by, by dominant culture. And so we, we take these stereoty stereotypes from of these students and we just, again, we cast them away and it's just, it's very, it's troubling and it's, it's, it's a problem. Agreed. There are those who say that, quote, college isn't for everyone, end quote. What do you say to that? If you, if, if anybody wants to, to put me in a bad mood or, or, <laughs> That's what they, that's what you tell me. You tell me that college isn't for everyone. So I was, um, I got, I was invited to speak at a Title I middle school here in Leon County. Mm -hmm. um, coordinator works with children whose parents are incarcerated. And she wanted me to come talk about um, the CARE program, which is, um, it's, a, it's a bridge program that we have at Florida State for low-income and first-gen students. And she's, you know, she, she invited me to come, but she said, you know, I want you to come talk about the services, but I just, just to give you a heads up, all of them are probably not going to go because college is not a good fit, really uh. a good population. And, you know, I didn't, I didn't address it because I was more than happy to come and reverse that, that sort of thinking to that population. But my problem with that statement is that we don't tell rich students who are privileged or wealthy that college isn't for them. We don't really oh, hear that. In communities of high SES status, that's those messages of college is not for everyone tends to circulate in low income students, um, low income schools, Title I schools, students who are poor, students whose parents are incarcerated, or again, they don't really fit the cookie cutter um, vision of mm -hmm. dominant culture. And it, like I said, if, if you want to make me upset, that's what you'll tell me. And so I, I don't believe that. I believe every single student that I work with, every single student that I come and encounter with is college, can be college ready. Absolutely. We have an obligation to get them ready. It's, it's you know, we, so yeah, I don't agree with that statement. And I, I think that's a really valid question. And I hope that educators will get out of that mindset because in my opinion, education is the key to upward mobility. And yes, they can take up a trade and that can also be a means of accessibility. But um, again, we don't, push that, we don't push that narrative on students whose parents are college educated and students who are privileged and well-travel. Right. We only have those conversations for the ones that we've cast off. Yeah, yeah, I agree. In a perfect world, college would be free and accessible for everyone. Knowing what we know now about college access, what role does TRIO play in closing those gaps, those access gaps, I mean? Yes, yeah, so um, 
um, I believe that TRIO, um, the, the role that TRIO plays in, in providing access to college is, is providing the, the, the cultural capital, um, the academic capital um, for students to be successful. So again, um, taking away the notion that college is for a certain type of people, certain type of people and you know normalizing the experience of being on a college campus and sitting in a classroom and um you know one of our, my plans this past spring was to bring my middle school students to we have um they have like a a family we call it the set but i forget at fsc what it's called but it's pretty much like the social time where they come and they play music and um the black student union comes out and so again normalizing these experiences for students so they can see themselves in these environments. Um, so TRIO, because we are well-funded by the federal government, we have the funds to make these experiences real, practical, and normalized. And so um, TRIO does an excellent job in closing um, those gaps. That's amazing. I know with a TRIO, it almost has this, provides this semi-quasi, college experience for a lot of students, uh, especially while they're in high school. And so they get to feel what college, uh, what college would look like for them. Um, describe your most memorable moment with TRIO Upward What memory sticks out for you? So this summer, I would say, and again, I've been in TRIO for a year. Um, so this summer, as you know, you may or may not know, um, we have gone completely, we've all, all, most of the programs have had to go completely um, virtual and online. And so yeah. one really cool thing that we're doing this summer is, as, as you know, students, they've been displaced and they're not in school and they're not receiving those meals that they um, typically receive once they're in school. And so we decided, well, how can we, you know, engage students and make the, the part of the curriculum fun and engaging. So we're actually hosting, a, we have a culinary class. And so what I do every week, every Monday, I get on walmart.com and I order groceries for our students and I've hired a cook to show them how to prepare healthy meals. And oh, so wow. they're doing really fancy stuff. And I have an Instagram page and I, I share it, but I mean, you should see, you should see their meals. It's, it's very, it's impressive. Cause these are like, cause again, I work with non-trio students too in the college access program. Mm -hmm. And so I have schoolers who are like cooking three course meals and it, it they upload it to our social media page and it, they're, they're doing such a great job and so um having parents get on the instagram page or send me a text or an email and just you know thank me for um providing this as a resource that is it's been it's been nice to receive that feedback because again we're in a virtual setting and they lost the opportunity to come on campus for um six weeks this summer and so getting that the feedback that you know that having the virtual program allowed them to stay engaged and provided back a sense of like routine for them this summer that has been um i that i've, I've really that's inspired me to get to continue pushing through and making these experiences possible for our population well, that's amazing. So you're really teaching them not only uh, the the academic, uh, the the uh, bridging over to college, but giving them some basic life skills to really learn about themselves and and really go away from this. I feel like uh, lately uh, our culture uh, here in Colorado has been kind of fast food lately. And so mm -hmm. it's good to have uh, um, programs like yours that are teaching students these basic life skills about cooking for yourself and, and being able to create meals. Yes, it's it's been good because last year they came on campus and um, they usually have when they stay in the residential component, they they get breakfast and lunch and no, I'm sorry, they, we we have we provide them with lunch and dinner 
And then we buy them groceries to cook breakfast to learn that life skill, but always order out or they just miss breakfast because they don't know how to cook. And so we're hoping next summer, hopefully we can be back on campus that they'll actually cook breakfast because now they, they know how to. That's amazing. That's been pretty cool. Yeah. Uh, In your opinion, what's in store for trio for the trio programs or trio upward bound specifically in the next five years? You know, I, 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 I don't know if I said this already, but there's this quote that says, like, a crisis is a terrible thing to waste, right? And mm-hmm. so, the pandemic, as challenging and awful as it's been, um, it's worth to see what, what have we learned from this. And one thing that we've been able to do successfully is we've been able to serve more students because we are, we are virtual. And so, I'm interested to see if um, you know, the grant project regulation will allow us to increase the amount of students that we serve um, and allow us to continue our virtual efforts because we have students every summer that m- may not be able to participate in the, the summer residential program because they have to work or they have other obligations, family mm-hmm. obligations that prevents them from doing that. But we've been able to create a curriculum and a, pro- a summer program that allows students to still work still watch maybe a sibling at home, still participate in, in whatever, pro- some of our students are doing like football, warm-up practice, and still receive college, um, pre-college support through our virtual program. So I wouldn't be surprised if, um, you know, stipulations are made for us to, again, serve more students on a virtual program in, in addition to the face-to-face component. Absolutely. And what about for yourself, Ainika? What do you see for yourself in the next five years? So my goal is to serve as many uh, underrepresented, minority, low-income, first-gen, everyone that falls under that umbrella, to serve as many students as possible through our college access programs and to provide them with cultural capital. And so um, I, I am very fortunate to have be, to be in the position that I am because I've, I've identified what my professional identity will probably be for the long run. And again, seeking other opportunities to expand my role, to continue to advocate, um, to break down these systematic barriers that our, our, our students experience to, again, get as many students into college as possible and, with, and, and getting them there and having them be successful. Fantastic. What are some words of encouragement for TRIO participants listening to the podcast right now? So I would say, you know, for every TRIO director, counselor, coordinator, academic specialist, um, people that work behind the scenes doing administrative duties, um, if anything, I want to thank you for for your service and your commitment to our students. Um, You know, this job requires us to be away from our families because it, it, there's so much time that's spent on, you know, making these programs successful. And I always say, if we're going to be away from our families, it, it needs to be towards something that is going to change, you know, society and, and do for the better good um, for our students. So if anything, you know, keep, keep tracking on. We, we matter to these students. Um, you know, continue, continue, keep on the mission. And, and again, just thank you for, for what you're doing to make a difference. And for students that are listening? Students that are listening, um, my, one of my advices is, is don't take no for an answer. There, where there's a will, there is a way, and you have, 
if you're a trio student, you have a, a team of people, there's a, you know, association behind supporting you and making sure that you are successful in your, not only in your educational goals, but in your personal, your personal goals as well. So again, don't take no for an answer, push through, stay focused. And, and again, use, utilize your network and your connections because trio, the trio staff, we, we care about you. We love you and we believe in you. Wonderful. Uh, Inika, we're at the tail end of our podcast. I just want to say it's a, it was such a pleasure to have you on the podcast, and we would love to have you back on here again in the near future to discuss uh, not only your program, but maybe even have your students on the podcast if they want. Sure, I would love. I welcome the opportunity. Fantastic. Can you do us the honor in signing us, uh, signing us off for us? Yeah, sure. This is Anika Williams, director of the Upward Bound program at Florida State University, and I support the notion that TRIO works. Thank you so much for that sign off and we will talk to you soon. Thanks so much, Juan. Take care. Thank you. All right, Einika, we are signed off. We, I stopped recording. Are you a participant, alum, or staff of a TRIO program? Do you want your program highlighted? You or your program could be featured in an upcoming episode of Let's Talk TRIO. Get a hold of us by going to our Facebook page or Instagram and send us a direct message. Search for Let's Talk TRIO. We want to get your story to the public. What a great episode with Inika Williams from Florida State University, Trio Upward Bound. Inika, thank you so much for being on the podcast. I think it's stories like these that we really have a good opportunity to reflect and look at true professionals that uh, look at uh, students that are coming from disadvantaged backgrounds and their willingness, the, the professional's willingness to assist those students that have that passion and drive to go to college. So Aniko, we salute you and we salute all the work that you do. Thank you so much for being an educator and for um, guiding future generation of students. Just a friendly reminder, you too can be on the Let's Talk Trio podcast. Send us a message at Let's Talk Trio, L-E-T-S-T-A-L-K-T-R-I-O at gmail.com. Or you can direct message us via Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. I once again want to thank Angelica Villalpando, our podcast sponsor. Angelica, we thank you. You too can be a sponsor of the podcast. Head on over to Patreon. Donate any dollar amount monthly. This allows us to cover basic upkeep for the podcast, whether it's upgrading equipment, paying our monthly charge to keep the podcast going, or software licenses. I want to take a moment to thank the podcast team. John Russell, our music producer, editor, and audio engineer. Amelia Castañeda, our producer, marketing manager, and social media manager. Juan Rivas, executive producer and host. Honorary members of Let's Talk Trio include Tony Ho, Roderick Chambers, and Scott Kendall. We thank you all very much for your support. We thank you for continuing to support the podcast, and we will catch you on the next episode.